Hi, this is Sarah. And this is Dan. And we'd like to welcome you to PDPAL. A no longer new podcast on all things pediatric palliative care. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Dan, and I'm your chief flight attendant. On behalf of Captain Sarah and the entire crew, welcome aboard PDPAL Airlines Flight 12, nonstop service to Hyderabad, India. And we'd like to take this moment to remind our passengers that the views expressed on PDPAL are ours alone and not reflective of our respective organizations, and they do not constitute medical advice. At this time, make sure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their full upright and locked position and that your seatbelt is securely fastened. Please turn on your portable electronic devices so that you can listen to the remainder of this episode. This episode needs extra explanation compared to our previous because it's actually going to be the beginning of a new thing we're doing for year two of PDPAL in 2022. Interspersed with our regular episode content, we're going to do special episodes about international pediatric palliative care, bring guests from other countries to talk about their experiences, their influences, and their mentorship and what that looks like, their challenges they feel like are unique to them. And we're going to start with a very special guest from India. Hello, my name is Dr. Spandana Rayala. I'm from Hyderabad, India, which is in the southern part of India. I'm a pediatric palliative care consultant. I work with the NGO. The NGO has ties with the tertiary cancer hospital and tertiary children's hospital. These are the biggest hospitals catering to a huge population. So I get to see cancer and non-cancer uh, pediatric population coming from this area. How did you come to this work? How did you first learn about pediatric palliative care? And what did the field look like when you first entered it? I was looking for doing a little more after my residency, but I didn't know what it was. And because of the place I was in, uh, my options were limited. It was pediatric ICU, neonatology, either of which I didn't have much uh, passion towards. I have never heard what pediatric palliative care is. And mind you, I completed my residency at this point. Right, I haven't heard the word till then, which is true to many, many residents even now in India. But then my father got this paper called Pediatric Palliative Care Fellowship in Hyderabad. And then I googled what pediatric palliative care was. You know, it's the uh, routine stuff that comes up, end of life, children dying and stuff like that. And I was like, no, this is not why I came into pediatrics. I want to save lives. I don't want to deal with it. At the end of the fellowship, uh, there's a small note that there's a six weeks uh, certificate course if you would like to do and this is how much it costs and I thought this sounds okay you don't want to do a one-year fellowship but you want to do something why don't you just go and look at it and that is when I went to the place I work now I did my certificate course my boss over there Dr. Gayatri Pallet who does and did a lot of work in pediatric palliative care uh, offered me the fellowship after a lot of deliberation I took it then I just stayed in it because of the work that we do. So it's not that I saw the value of it and I entered it, but it's more like, what should I do? And it was just a chance, fine. And I'm so grateful that at that point in my life, I was ready to see what pediatric palliative care was. You mentioned um, that you had never heard the word before. And then you mentioned that many other people in India haven't heard the word before. And I wonder how you explain pediatric palliative care your families in India and if it's the same way we do it here? It is a little tricky. Indian healthcare system doesn't work uh, exactly like 
the U.S. healthcare system. So we have government hospitals, which are completely funded by the government. So you just walk in, in whatever services they have, they're free of cost for the patient. They don't take a single rupee for anything in the government hospitals. But as you can imagine, they're short-staffed, they're overworked, and the services are sometimes not to the full range. So people might opt for corporate hospitals, which is how we pay for services. So it's a balance. There are very few practitioners in India who are receiving money for their services uh, to do palliative care in itself. Most of it is run by NGOs or government hospitals or cancer hospitals. So with this background, when I go to these government hospitals and explain to them that, hey, I'm uh, Dr. Spandana, I'm a pediatrician, that that does have a lot of weight. When I say I'm a pediatrician and I do pediatric palliative care, the pediatrician somehow connects much better compared to an adult palliative care practitioner asking for a referral. So that is one thing that works well for me. And then I have to explain to them what pediatric palliative care is, uh, um, just like you do. And a lot of times, when I say pediatric palliative care, the seniors, the professors say, but the child is not end of life. It's, it's always the same, right? But in fact, the child dies two days later. It's just that they didn't expect it, right? Because they're hoping that the child will somehow come out of that crisis. So I go back to the whole thing that, um, yeah, I understand end of life is one part of it, but definitely I think, uh, you know, we can start with preparing the family for it and look at the symptoms and see what we can do. It's just so hard for them to understand that we can bring an additional value to what is being offered already. And it is a lot of hard work. The difficult part is being rejected sometimes and walking back into the hospital next day and holding your head high up in front of the other residents and asking for that referral again. Do you do your visits mostly in the hospital? Do you visit them at home? Do you visit them end of life at home, like we would call in the United States sometimes hospice? We have an inpatient and an outpatient in the hospital. But then when they are within the 35 kilometers radius of the hospital, and sometimes we are more flexible, each van has a nurse and a social worker. And depending on the priority, the doctor goes for a visit too. So it's mostly a nurse-led program, the home care, with the doctor supervising it. And we also have a hospice. So earlier, past seven years, we have an adult hospice with one cubicle, one room dedicated for pediatrics, and we had three beds in it. I think it's more like the UK style here. So when we say hospice, it is not end of life or it doesn't have anything to do with insurance. Hospice is actually a physical place where we refer our patients. There are not many, many hospices in India and not many at all for pediatrics. A lot of capacity building has been happening in the past five years, and it has been very interesting to watch it. We do have a lot of children with global developmental delays caused by metabolic disorders, uh, post-hypoxic uh, ischemic encephalopathy. We have a lot of children with cerebral paralysis here and uh, complex congenital heart disease, inoperable, very atricious with failed side procedures. More often than not, the child is going to die in the ICU. And more often than not, they are from 200, 300 kilometers away from their hometown. So we go through the discussion and we say, what do you think is the best case scenario for this child? What do you think we can offer? It does take a lot of time. And it is that I'm not taking away your patient and I'm not, and I'm not hoping the child is going to die. I'm going to reassure that. But I just want the child to live as well as possible for as long as possible. How do your patients and families 
react to that spiel? It is very difficult for them, just like parents from all over the world, I think. A lot of them are not ready to give up, as they like to put it. They want to keep trying. And that is why we always leave the door open. So we have some phone call services backup, which they can call 24-7. So we say, hey, that's okay. If you want to take more opinions, they're totally okay with us. But this is our number and you can call us anytime you have a trouble. And we are here for you and your child. And that is one way when they are in that rejection mode. And uh, most of the times here in India, they're okay to share their phone numbers. So we do get back to them and ask how they're doing. Sometimes that is when they share that it has been a very difficult time. They want the services. Sometimes they're like, they're going to the next doctor and that's totally okay. They're okay with that. And we say they're going to call back. That's the ones who are outrightly rejecting palliative care and they don't want it. But then there are some, I think because we also have a social worker who doesn't exist elsewhere in the hospital system here, they find this connect to share what they're going through. In India, we have a very paternalistic model of communication with physicians where the physician tells what to do and the patient and the family has to do it. Right. So in a way that the doctor is high up and the patient is on the lower level somewhere, that, that is culturally there somewhere. But this kind of leads to patient being a little afraid sometimes, a little inhibited to ask questions. So having a trained social worker opens a lot of doors for them uh, to have this one-on-one conversation with them. And that does not mean we do not talk to them as pediatric palliative care physicians. We do have those conversations. But still, again, a lot of the population we are catering to are rural, uh, poor and illiterate. And I don't mean it in any demeaning way. It's just that they are so scared of doctors. Most of the patients that we see, again, because I work in a uh, low resource setting for India, we do have many high resource settings here. Uh, So I'm speaking only for the low resource setting here. And in the low resource setting, they most of them, they cannot afford the services elsewhere. They do not have a stable job most of the times, or they're into agriculture and farmers, and they don't make a lot of money. They haven't gone to school beyond fifth, sixth class sometimes. And uh, their house is 300 kilometers away. And this is their first time in a city. Uh, it's the first time coming to Hyderabad. And they're so... Uh, scared, fascinated, worried, and anxious at the same time, right? Because they're seeing these buildings and everything for the first time. Sometimes there are tribal uh, people here, right? So they do not understand when we say the child has ALL and she needs chemotherapy to survive. They're like, no, that's okay. We want to go home. We want to go home. We want to go home because they don't want to be here. Children in general, I think, are a vulnerable population here. A lot of times the child has fever and they have to... Uh, reap their crops or something much more important. They have a wedding at home, someone died, and the adults stay back at home with the child and the child worsens and they forget giving anti-epileptics, the child has status, and these things happen. And that that's in a way cultural because sometimes chi- children do not feature on the top of the list. Having said that, I'm not saying all Indians are bad parents or anything. It's just that things happen in life and children do not come as a priority. And then we also have this whole thing that no matter what happens, it's the fault of the mother. And this exists a lot. So Down syndrome, it's a mother's fault. HIE, it's a mother's fault. Right? Uh, metabolic disorder, mother's fault. The first thing they're thinking is, is it going to repeat? Can I get my son married again? Oh. We are a patriarchal society with the mother-in-law being the most powerful 
a person. So uh, there is this question of can we have more healthy children, and if not, can I get my son married soon? So uh, so a lot of our communication comes from a place of explaining to them, even though they don't ask, that it's not her fault. Without saying that, right? We, we don't want to. We want to do it very subtly that. it happened because of various other reasons and it is no one's fault uh, yeah culturally it is quite challenging and interesting and sometimes maddening because uh, we have the extended family culture uh, where my aunts uh, sisters uh, local friends someone else will have an opinion on my life so we are very interfering in some ways uh when it comes to social life and decisions that we make in life so it becomes very difficult for the families when we offer a hospice care they're scared to move the child from the tertiary children hospital to the hospice care because what would everyone in the village say what would my mother in law say if i took this child out of this hospital and the child dies it is my fault a lot of times uh the poor get palliative care here in india than the rich right because the rich can afford the corporate hospital and the corporate hospital is going to put them in the icu so probably the other wish i would have is that it gets filtered even to the upper strata of the society uh, just because it is being done by ngos and in the government hospitals it shouldn't be restricted to the the poor low socio economic or any such thing i think even the rich deserve to die comfortably <laughs> right so uh so whenever i see uh, a minister with lung cancer dying in the biggest hospitals uh, most intensive icus uh it's somehow i'm like oh my god he's a union minister he's a central minister and he had to die in the icu probably all alone uh, probably with so many tubes going in through so many orifices it's not a death he deserved he served our country right so he deserved a better death so that is something i do think about and uh, a lot of times uh, it gets more difficult because you have money you can spend money and uh, people think money gets you the best care and that is where i think palliative care is uh, proving it wrong and i hope sometime at some point it's going to reach them too It almost sounds like there's an unspoken cultural component of being in a corporate hospital, being in a corporate ICU is a symbol of your status and your wealth. Definitely. Definitely. There is no way mm, my driver is going to be able to afford a 10-day ICU stay. There is no way. There's no way my house's health is going to afford that. It's going to be only me who's going to afford that. So, more likely than not, I'm going to end up dying in the ICU rather than them. again it goes back to the cultural thing as you said uh if they choose to get them out of the icu even for palliative care even for that good death people are going to say don't you love your father enough or don't you love your child enough to spend money on them are you counting your rupees now that you're bringing them out of the icu so there is this cultural thing that more is better and uh, that uh, affects the way they live in the last few days and the way they die When those families want to go back, do you continue to care for that child two to three hundred kilometers away? Do you send them with medications to use two or three hundred kilometers away? How does that work? I think over the past few years, we have refined the way we follow up these children. What we offer, as I said, is the twenty-four-seven phone call follow-up. 
which they can call anytime and take uh, the phone is usually with the nurse and the nurse gives the, uh, is the first line to receive the call and give the telephonic advice and the nurse is compensated a little extra uh, financially for doing this because she's doing it out of office hours also 24/7 so if the nurse thinks it's something to be escalated to the doctor she does it and we follow up the child closely because they reached out to us first and we have developed a small uh, system where in which we call children regularly so every day around 10 calls go out of the department to these children who are away and we ask them how they are doing and if they're doing fine or not and if they have any symptoms and if they need any help and most often than not it's just a hello call and uh, just touching base with how they're doing but sometimes they do have symptoms and we can advise uh, give medical advice to them one of the things that we often think about as part of palliative care is spiritual care and so i'm wondering what role that plays in your practice or in india more generally in terms of the spiritual care that's offered to patients or the religious aspects that border on palliative practice the actual ground reality is we live pretty much in harmony so the major religions here that we have are hindus christians and muslims there are other religions like jains buddhists but uh, the numbers are not uh, very much and probably uh, i haven't met many in hyderabad i have met some sikhs who have uh, come here for work purpose and they have stayed here but most of them uh, have been uh, hindus muslims and christians just to give you an idea of how it works the cancer hospital there are two huge wards of pediatrics it's not individual rooms so so it's two huge wards close to 50 and 50 beds so a lot of uh, community living happens that they help each other irrespective of their religion and it is beautiful to see that and it is heartening to see that happening in spite of what keeps coming up in the news in india even the finances they themselves do not have money but they share it with their neighbor because they need to buy that blood and transfuse immediately so you see that and it's beautiful and i don't have words beyond that for that we do not have a pastor or a priest or a, a imam coming and speaking to them but uh, we do ask the more uh, spiritual non faith questions but uh, a lot of times the answers are something related to the god i find it difficult to say god is going to help you but i do understand when they strongly believe the god i i respect that and uh, i'm amazed by that faith and we encourage uh, being connected to their own religion if prayer helps we help them do that and our hospice is next to a dargah which is like a mosque uh, where they go for prayer so we encourage families who are and patients who are able to walk to go to uh, dargah or on fridays offer their prayers and come back i think it's dealing with their biases accepting that spirituality is a huge thing for them and uh, most of indians are very very uh, faith based all of them like the muslims are strongly faith based hindus are strongly faith based and christians are very strongly faith based like everyone is so to even encourage that and to help them find meaning help them connect with other people i think it's a huge thing i'm wondering if there are things when you are talking to people in other countries that you think we take for granted that you don't have in india it's a, a funny story i did a four week uh, rotation in chio ottawa 
So my mentor is Dr. Megan Doherty, who did a lot of work with Bangladesh and who uh, still runs our pediatric palliative care fellowship programs. When I went to work with her for four weeks, I would have a lot of questions. One, because I'm curious. Two, because I have to do them myself once I get back to India. Right. So I keep I kept asking questions and then she'd be like, you know what? We have a G-tube nurse to handle that. Let me put you in touch with her. And then we have a trait nurse to take care of that. Let me put you in touch with her. And then you have all these specialist nurse. And then she introduced me to a childlike specialist, right? When I had questions about that, like, how do you buy the toys and stuff and things like that? She's like, we have a childlike specialist. Then she introduced me to the play therapist, right? So I was meeting all these people and they had their own niche. Like, this is what I do and this is what I do. But when you come to India... It is not so. The nurse has zero training in palliative care, uh, more so in pediatric palliative care. The social worker has zero training in palliative care, more so in pediatric palliative care. So I have to give them those specific competencies. So if I hope to continue working in pediatric palliative care in India, at least the next 10, 20 years, I have to learn everything the G-tube nurse does, everything the trait nurse does, everything the play therapist does, everything the child life specialist does. And that was like a revelation to me to realize that, okay, this is not going to be easy. I have to play multiple roles. And to this day, when I tell my social worker, shall we plan a play session in the evening? Uh, it's difficult for them to come up with ideas. And uh, I mean, the regular play they can manage, but those specific things we want to elicit or try and get out of the child, it's very difficult for them because they haven't been taught that. How about from a medication perspective? Do you feel like you have access to the opioids that you need and you have access to the other medications that you need? I come from a very privileged place. Uh, the hospital I work with uh, has had palliative care and pediatric palliative care close to now what, 15 years? So there are systems in place. Our program coordinator is uh, pretty competent in that before our morphine gets done, she can get morphine. Like mm -hmm. we have morphine continuous supply. Right now we do not have methadone. 2017, I think was the year India's first started having methadone and uh, there were only three centers initially, one of which was our center. We did uh, train a lot in the beginning and then uh, we got more confident and we use it for children a lot now. And not having methadone now and now getting the children off methadone and changing them to morphine kind of makes me realize how difficult it must be in some of the other places where they do not have year-round access. I think it's the complete opposite opioid crisis of what happens in the U.S. that happens in India. We have the lack of it uh, compared to the previous excess of what you had and what you had to go through. And again, India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, we produce most of the morphine, but we do not uh, use uh, enough per capita. A lot of times I try to demonstrate that the opioids are safe. And uh, I am considered a much better doctor than the oncologist because I just took away the pain away in a few minutes. Right. And the mother is so grateful. She's like, for the past six weeks, he hasn't been sleeping well. And you gave this medication. It's so tiny and it made it work so well. And I'm like, I make sure the oncologist hears that. Right. So just so that, you know, not not to prove my point, but then also it proves my point that opioids are safe. The mothers are happy. The child is sleeping comfortably and it advocates for that. Uh, we are using lignocaine, ketamine, dexmedetomidin, uh, and the other drugs here. Uh, but I think in India, 
cannabinoids are not yet approved, but they come under the Ayurvedic ones, right? Like Ayurveda is another form of uh, alternate medicine, the herbal medicine. So there are some patients who receive cannabinoids and never know it, and we never know it. What has been the best part for you about pursuing pediatric palliative care? It changed me for better in a lot, many ways. It opened my mind's doors in many, many ways. And I've always been an avid reader, but uh, this made me a completely different person. I mean, the whole experience of it. A lot of times people ask, don't you get depressed? Uh, you do such a sad work. Like, why are you here? You don't get paid enough and things like that. I think back to that time when it made it all meaningful for me. It made my life meaningful for me to go forward. I have received so much kindness in this journey of mine. People who are willing to help. I realized I just have to ask and people would say yes. And it's not me. It's the other person who wanted to help people asking genuinely. So I think that's been a wonderful journey. Dan, I want to talk about one of the challenges of this episode series we're going to do, the international guest episode. We ask a lot of our guests, what cultural challenges do you face that are specific to you? And I recognize that if that question was turned on us, it would be difficult to answer because I think we forget what is cultural and what is not in America. And I think there's that David Foster Wallace speech that I'm stealing and that he steals another story about the fish who are swimming along. And then one of them turns to the other, says the water is lovely today. And then the fish go, well, what is water? I think some of us forget what is American culture. And I just want to recognize the limits and the challenges of asking that question, but we're going to ask it. We're going to ask it of every single guest who comes on, um, but recognizing we would also have a very hard time answering that question. Yeah. It would be hard for me to know where to start thinking about the water that we swim in. Yeah. And maybe some of it is they're a fighter. Maybe some of that is unspoken American culture. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that is actually not that they're exclusive to American culture, but they are pretty um, common, right? Think about the things that lots of families talk about. What are the common threads? Mistrust of the medical system is very much part of American culture as much as we wish it wasn't. A focus on autonomy mm -hmm. is very American. Yeah. It's hard to answer this question. It is. It is. And, and I think part of the way I'm answering it or trying to answer it is by thinking about what I know about other countries based on, you know, lectures I've heard from people from those countries. And so I guess that actually <laughs> comes right back to where we started. It does. Right. And I guess in a way provides a little bit of the justification for why we're doing this series at all. As I think about the interviews that we've done so far that our listeners will get to hear in the coming months, hearing from our colleagues who are working in other countries and other cultures has given me a different perspective on what the water is around <laughs> me, right? And what, what I'm swimming in in this culture. And we could probably also, you and I, compare notes on... New East York Coast versus Russia. California. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know it feels different when I trained at UCSF versus now when I'm in New York City. Like there are probably some pretty big cultural differences there too. And someone from a different region of the United States would probably also have a lot to contribute to that conversation. Thanks for listening. Our theme song is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can follow us on Twitter, where our username is at PDPAL. You can find the notes for this podcast and all of our episodes on pdpal.org. If you'd like to submit thoughts, objections, or ideas for future episodes, please reach out via the email on our website. This has been PDPAL. We'll see you next month.
Great. No, that sounds good. We can use that. We're recording. That was great. Yeah, but don't use that because my voice does this American thing at the end where it just gets higher. <laughs> <laughs>